morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Loving the wet? Yeah. Actually, it's been pretty nice, hasn't it? It's not too wet out there. It's what? Cold. Oh, is that why you got that blanket? Ah, okay. <laughs> makes sense, makes sense. All right. Jacket usually works, too. Yeah. Um, some of you are probably expecting um, Pastor Eric, because that's what Debbie told you, but as you notice, I'm not Pastor Eric, you know. And as uh, Dan said, I preached a few weeks ago, and I'm back, and no, I'm not going to quote ACDC, no sir, it's not happening, <laughs> it's not happening. Um, <laughs> oh, it got you, huh? Okay, good, good. Um, let's pray, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for a marvelous day, Lord, a beautiful day which you have made, Lord. And Father, I thank you that we can rejoice, Father. Help us to choose to rejoice and be glad in it because we serve a faithful God, our Father, our Abba, the hope of glory. So Father, thank you for this morning. Would you use me? to speak to my brothers and sisters out there, Lord God. Father, would you touch hearts this morning? Would you meet with us, Lord? Humble us enough, Father God, to not just be hearers of your word, but doers as well, through Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. This morning, I've entitled my sermon, The Hope of Glory. The Hope of Glory. And it's my hope that this will bring to you guys, or even one, a hope in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I plan to have, eh, I plan to just really focus on my, um, my notes here this morning. I don't want to go off track because I'm going to need you to track with me, okay? I need you to track with me this morning. I'm going to basically have a little psych class this morning. Just a little bit of psych, not too much. I'm not gonna blow your brains, just a little bit, okay? Have you ever given thought to your life? And I would, I would venture to say most of you, if not all of you, have at some point or another. Most of you have, but I mean serious, deep thoughts about your life. Have you wrestled with thoughts like, Simply, what is my life? What's my life about? What does my life mean? What do I do in and with my life that's meaningful? What structures my life? Which path will I take in this life, in my life? And we can go on and on with more of these questions, and probably some of us have, okay? But have you ever considered the question, is my life my own? Is my life my own? When you think about it, doesn't life itself seem to tell us things that we can reasonably expect? Like, for example, I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen. So as a citizen, okay, I can reasonably expect some things here that impact my life, okay? Things that someone in North Korea, for example, would not expect because their life over there is different. Things that someone 
in Australia, a citizen of Australia would not expect. And you could pick a bunch of different places, okay? Did I, our personal environment and the people in it instill within us each a certain value, a certain ethic? You know, your mom, your dad, your grandparents, whoever it was that raised you, they instilled in you values and ethics, okay? And it's, it's funny, when I, when, I, when I think about values and ethics, and I was at a wedding just a couple weeks ago, and I had to give honor to my, my parents. And when I think about values and ethics, I can't help but think about my dad. My dad, and I'm one of a twin, okay, and we have some other children, I mean, some other siblings. <laughs> um, my dad instilled values and ethics into me and my brother. I mean, when I say instilled, he instilled it. We were knuckleheads. And some of you know what I'm talking about out there. You know, you know, he, he made sure that we stayed on course and he gave us values and ethics to live by, okay? Our personal environment and the people in it instill within each one of us certain values and, and ethics. The upbringings by our parents, guardians, instill within us certain values and ethics, like those values and ethics were influenced by every person that has entered our lives, okay, till this very point in time. Your values and ethics have been guided and steered by everyone, whether they're good or bad, by everyone that's come into your life to this point in time, okay? Values and ethics influence much of our decisions, our actions, and many of the endeavors that we undertake or are faced with. Every situation and every circumstance that enters our life passes through the filter of our values and ethics, which have influenced us until this very point in time. Okay? Now, along with those values and ethics, we come to have what's called reasonable expectations. Okay, our reasonable expectations then are those that we're cultured in, those things that we've grown, that are grown by people within us, past influences and circumstances that are driven to resolve or explain every picture, every thought that we have in our minds, okay? So to better understand what I mean by reasonable expectations, let's apply it to marriage. For those of us here who are married, what are some of the reasonable expectations that a married couple would have toward each other? Somebody shot one out. A reasonable expectation that you would have for your spouse. I'm sorry? Fidelity, okay, all right? I've listed a few more, all right? And it's gonna differ based on your personal relationship, all right? It's gonna differ. Uh, one of them is affection. Have affection toward one another. Compassion, and compassion is not just something husband and wife have, but we have compassion one towards another, okay? Um, respect, again, husband and wife, respect one another. Respect your elders, respect one another, okay? Uh, consideration, time, spending time with your significant one, your wife, your children, okay? Interests, establishing the same interests, giving, giving in 
to the interests of one another, okay? Except for the opera, babe. I, I just can't do the opera. It's not going to work. Uh, um, giving in to the interest. And our reasonable expectations attempt to explain everything, every picture that is captured in our mind's eyes, okay? Our reasonable expectations. So that was a little bit of psych. And please, track with me here. Don't, don't lose me. Don't lose me. I'm going to bring it together. I promise. I promise. The changing of basic reasonable expectations of the newborn Christian is something that sets the Christian apart from the non-Christian. When your, re your reasonable, reasonable expectations, when you become a Christian, it changes. And that's what sets you apart from other believers, okay? At this point, though, I want to change the wording from reasonable expectations, and you're going to be relieved at this, I'm going to change it to hope, okay? You have hope. My wife would hope that I would be affectionate towards her. Same thing with you guys, your husband and wife, you would hope that you would be affectionate towards another, okay? She hopes that I will make time for her. She hopes that I would be considerate enough to wash the dishes occasionally. You know, those are some of the hopes that we have for each other, okay? Some of you are probably thinking there that she can hope all she wants. <laughs> but it's not happening, right? Now, let's direct this hope vertically. Let's go vertical with the hope, all right? When we became a Christian, something powerful, something glorious took place. Instilled within our hearts was the hope of Sunday spending eternity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Spending time with our Creator, with our Father, that is the hope that we have when we became Christians, when we became believers, okay? When we became a Christian, and I should say instilled within our hearts was the hope of Sunday spending eternity with God the Father. God, I already said that. All of our hopes and the foundation of those hopes changed not only in the direction that we were going, okay, but in the focus of who it is that we're dependent upon now. We're not depending on mom and dad. We're not depending on grandma and grandpa anymore. Our focus has totally changed. Our dependency is and will always be from here on in. Hear me now, because I know about this. You know, sometimes we put hope and dependence on one another and we totally forget about God. So much so that if we fail one another in some tiny way, it almost destroys our lives because our hope, our dependency was on that person, my wife, my grandmother, my father, whoever it is, we lose that, okay? So our focus is on Christ. Like, like our GPS, when we decide that we don't want to follow her anymore, our hopes are rerouted. We're rerouted in our hopes, okay? And not only where are we rerouted, but we become acutely aware of where those hopes are founded 
and maintain. And those hopes are founded and maintained. Founded and maintained. We must maintain that hope in Jesus Christ. It has to happen. Nothing else will do. Okay? Christ in you, Colossians tells us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is what we became acutely aware of when we became Christians. And know the hope that is founded in Jesus Christ. There's other hopefulnesses as well. Okay? And I'm going to be speaking on a couple of those. And, but first, let's read uh, Acts chapter 28, verses 17 through 22. And before we read, my tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth. Follow with me, 17 to 22. After, th- whoa. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, to set me free, because because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, it was com- I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am waiting, wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what, you what your views are. For with regards to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. This is what we became acutely aware of, okay? This, this sect, let me change, change here. So we see that it is Jesus Christ, it is for the hope of Israel, Jesus Christ with which, for which Paul is in chains, okay? Yet when you are talking about a non-Christian or non-believer, it is very difficult to make any point, any point to them when you bring Jesus Christ into the picture. And the case, that is the case with Paul and these Jewish leaders right now. So Paul appealed to what I'm calling the hope of principles, and follow me here, to rule the hearts of the Jewish people there in Rome. Now before I I expound on the hope of principles, let's let's take a moment to briefly explore and consider Paul's and the Abrahamic covenant. Where does Paul stand, okay? How does Paul align his life with the Abrahamic covenant? As we try to make this connection, we could conclude that Paul was the perfect Jew, not Saul. I'm saying Paul, okay? Paul's life demonstrated how the Abrahamic covenant was meant to work in the world. Let's recall this first reading 
to Genesis and Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your home great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Jewish people rightly understood God's covenant with Abraham to mean that they would, they, that God would bless him and his descendants. He promised to bless Abraham and Sarah by giving them Isaac. God promised that he would bless Abraham's descendants. He would give Abraham's seed all the land of Canaan, and he would bless them there. The problem was that the Jews came to look upon God's blessing as their sole possession. They were like spoiled kids. They did not want to share. <laughs> okay, they, that was their sole possession. Rather than it was stewardship, which they were required to give to others. Okay, they did not understand or they chose to forget that the Abrahamic covenant also meant that the Jews would become a source of blessing to all families of the earth. And so we can look at Jonah, for example, and I think Eric uh, Bergstrom hit on this. We can look at um, Jonah, for instance, and see how he typified Israel's resistance to, his, to the aspect of the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant. He illustrated his, Israel's hatred to the Gentiles and, and the Jews' refusal to be the light to the Gentiles, and they were meant, and they, as they were meant to be. And sadly, Jonah was not the exception. He was the rule. Because you remember Jonah, God asked him to go into Nineveh, and what does Jonah say? It's Jonah absolutely, knowing who God is, Jonah says, no. That's how deep, that's how strong they believe that Jehovah God was their God and they weren't going to share it. Jonah says, no, I'm not going in there. These are a bunch of heathens. But God is saying, no, this is what I've called you for. The stewardship of what I've given you is for all my children. Okay? This was and is the right way for a Jew. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Earlier, we saw how Paul blessed the Gentiles. Let me step back. But we see, I should say, that Paul was the opposite of Jonah. And as been noted by our pastoral intern, like I said, Paul, a true and fulfilled Jew, that is a Jew who trusted in Jesus as the Messiah, was a blessing to all Gentiles. Earlier, we saw how Paul blessed the Gentiles by bringing the gospel to them. Paul blessed those on board his ship by encouraging them and by becoming the means of their deliverance. Paul was a blessing to Publius and his father and to the natives of Malta when he healed all the sick people there. And, became the and because of the gratitude that those natives showed him, Paul also became a, a blessing to the passengers who enjoyed the provisions the people of Malta gladly provided them. This was and is the right way for the Jew to understand and apply the Abrahamic covenant. 
it was not an excuse to look down upon us Gentiles, but an incentive to serve the Gentiles and to be a blessing to them. And what greater blessing can a child of Abraham be to unsaved Gentiles than to tell them of the salvation that God has provided through the Jews, that is to say, through Jesus Christ. So then, Galatians 6 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we see that throughout Paul's long ministry, every time he entered the city, he would follow the same pattern, okay, the same principle. What did he do first? If there was a synagogue, Paul would head towards that synagogue. Paul craved. He wanted so bad for his people to see that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the prophet's and scripture. He wanted them to see that. So he would make a beeline for <clears throat> he would make a beeline for the, for the, um, yeah you know what I'm talking about, the synagogues. <laughs> the synagogues. He would allow the Jew the first opportunity to hear about the salvation found in no other than he would then he would go to the Gentiles. So we see that throughout Paul's long ministry, that's what he was doing, okay? The Jew first, he wanted them to get, get it. And the same, it was the same in Rome. He called in the leaders of the Jews and presented this hope of principles to them. He presented the principles or standards that God had long ago established in the heart and mind and the culture of the Jewish nation. Paul was zealous for his people to come to realize that the fulfillment of the scriptures regarding the Messiah, it was done. It had been met. Not unlike the Christian, the Jew of that time had the hope of God, the hope of life, the hope of fellowship. Because you could see there were synagogues everywhere in Rome. Okay, That God had long, I mean, <clears throat> through, the, through the works of God, through the teaching of Moses, the hope of principles is established and on a well-built foundation. And we know what that foundation is, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the hope that Paul appeals to when he meets with the leaders of the Jews. He knows that Jesus is a reproach, okay? And so he must appeal to all those principles from, from, from the law that they abide by, those ethics, those rules, those standards, that he must appeal to that, okay? So it is also that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our reasonable expectations, they change to hope. When you come, when you became a believer, you were infused with the hope of life, a new hope, a new life. When you became a Christian, you died to sin and loneliness and were reborn to a guilt-free life an unending fellowship with the creator of the universe. When you stood up and told everyone, I surrender all, your old principles and your reasonable expectations were reformed, they were transformed, you were converted, you were renewed and improved through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? 
you began to see things differently. You began to see life differently. You began to walk differently. You began to hold yourself up differently. If the heads were sagging, your heads were up, we would hope. You began to talk a little differently. Why? Because your life principles have undergone a dramatic foundational change. Now there is hope. Now there is hope. Do you hear me? Hope in Jesus Christ. Next, I want to talk about the hope of conviction. Okay? And we're going to continue reading from verses 23 to 31. When they had appointed a day for him, they, be, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown, grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with the ears, their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you. And this is where, this is where Paul sticks it to him. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And they will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Bold without hindrance. Right? Now, Paul's finally in Rome. Rome is not new to, to us in Acts because some of the pilgrims from Rome had been in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost, okay? It wasn't so long ago that Luke told us that all the Jews, that Nero booted the Jews out of Rome, okay? After three days, Paul contacts the Jewish leaders and invites them to visit him in his rented house. When they had gathered, Paul explained why he was in Rome. He assured them that he had not done anything against the Jews. You remember me? saying that a few weeks ago, or against the Jewish customs. He had been handed over as a prisoner to the Romans, and they recognized, they knew that he was innocent. But they wanted to release him, but the Jews wouldn't let them, forcing Paul to then having to appeal to Caesar. He made it clear that he did not intend to press charges against his brothers, the Jews. He didn't, that's not his intent. Okay, but only to face the charges that they had raised. Paul declared that his chains were due to his faith and what more accurately in whom was the hope of Israel. 
The Jewish leaders then claimed not to have received any letters from Paul, nor had any brethren come from Jerusalem because of Paul. They did claim to have knowledge regarding the sect called Christianity that Paul represented, and they admitted that it was commonly opposed. I think that what they were trying to say is that while they had received no formal charges against Paul, they were aware of the gospel and the impact that it was having in Rome and in the surrounding cities, okay? And at the very least, they were skeptical. They were unbelieving. They were skeptical, even though Paul presented, you'll see, even though Paul presented wonderfully, expounded the Old Testament to them. Nevertheless, they were willing to give Paul the opportunity to present his position on these matters, okay? So the day came, and so did a good number of the Jews. Most of them were the Jewish leaders in Rome. For the entire day, all day long, imagine this, a preacher, Pastor Eric or Pastor Dan, not myself, I wouldn't do it, all day, all day, preaching and expounding on the word of God. Paul spoke about the kingdom of God, showing how the Lord Jesus filled all of the Old Testament scriptures. He showed them everywhere, the footprints of Jesus in the Old Testament. I mean, I would have loved to have been there. A survey of the Old Testament showing us Jesus, 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 Jesus. And you wonder, how could they not have seen this and still don't see it, okay? What he says, what he strongly implies that Paul's, nope, let's go there. All right, now we step into the present as we think about those who live around us, our families, our friends, our brothers, our sisters, our parents. Let's think about them for a minute. And the hope of conviction that we have for them. When we tell these people, when we come up, when we're bold enough, when we've cast aside the fear and the doubt, and we step up to them and we start giving them the gospel, our hope, my hope when I talk to my brothers is that God convict their hearts, reveal the truth to them, convict them while they are in their sin. And that's what Paul is trying to do here, okay? And so Paul now relies on the hope of conviction. He relied on the moving of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who heard his message. He could only explain, he could only declare, he could only announce to his listeners the kingdom of God, the hope of the gospel. He evangelized and let the Spirit of God do the work. Some believe, just like with us, some believe and some don't, okay? The hope of conviction is where we are relegated once we've presented the gospel. What that means is, the hope of conviction is where we take our place, we sit back, and we allow the Holy Spirit, because we're not the Holy Spirit. We allow the Holy Spirit to do the work, okay? And we allow the hope of conviction to come through, okay? And Romans 1.20 says, for this invisible attribute, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, that have been made. So they are without excuse, without excuse, all right? I present the gospel. God is convicting your heart. And then at the greater, he's already shown us, shown you his glory. The evidence is there. So choose you this day whom you will serve, is basically what Paul's saying. The hope of conviction is presently working in every heart and every individual in every part of the world. The hope of conviction is at work right here, right now, in all of our hearts, Christian and non-Christian alike, okay? Because we are sinners saved by grace, aren't we? Conviction is there. And, and the scripture tells us you will, they will ever, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. And we're applying this to the Jews now. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. And I, I just, I thought about this as I was going over my sermon. I thought about the first time conviction came into my life. It wasn't far from here. It was in 1983, Naval Air Station, which direction am I at? Yeah, Naval Air Station, Lakehurst, straight out of boot camp. And God placed in my life the most annoying little, what did I call him? I called him a weasel, basically. This guy would follow me, it seemed, everywhere, everywhere I went. He would be there. He would knock on my barracks door at the most inopportune times. I mean, he was really a pest. And, I mean, he would, he would be there no matter where I was until one day, I'm like, dude, you realize this is a nightclub. I'm here to get my party on. Leave me alone. Be gone. He was there. And I thank God for that little guy. I really really do because I came to realize that at the time he was the Lord's servant and he was there to till this soil of my heart okay and and then later on he prepared this soil for a young lady to lead me to the heart and to cultivate that seed and to nurture that seed and I ended up marrying that young lady, and I mean, this is what God used to prepare me, a little anoint, well, he wasn't that little, he was probably about this high, okay, little annoying guy, and I'm sure you've had those people, I hope you've had those people in your lives, that person that would not relent, they kept coming at you because they knew the importance of what they had, they knew that this thing that they had, this Jesus Christ, this hope of glory, this hope of Israel, you, I needed him too. And they didn't care what I, he didn't care what I thought about him. I called him a weasel to his face. He didn't care. He kept coming at me, okay? The hope of conviction is real and apparent in every prayer meeting that meets to lift unsaved friends and family members. The hope of conviction in their lives is sought after time and time again. 
We pray that the Lord would convict again our mother, our father, our sister, our friends, so that they would come to Jesus Christ. The power of Christ in one's, the power of Christ in one's life is powerful. It's unmistakable. When I got saved, and I'm sure most of you can relate to this, when I got saved and I said yes when my wife led me to the Lord, I was off and running. And you know what? My family members, they knew. It's like, what, what happened to Seth? What's going on? You know, they knew I was, I was on fire. And I just pray, God, every day, Lord, rekindle that fire in my soul so I can boldly, boldly bring the hope of glory to others that I won't be scared of what they're going to think about me, that I would love strong enough that my love for you, the unsaved, would be strong enough that I don't care what you think about me. All I care about is that you know my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Christ in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in conclusion, I have some thoughts, some applications, okay? God's purpose, his plan, his will in our lives is important. Hear me. His purpose his plan, his will in your life is not that nine to five that you're working or that five to midnight, whatever shift you have. It's not that. It's not your children, sadly enough. You know, I say sadly enough. That's not sad. It really isn't. Your children are a byproduct of you. You are supposed to fill them with the knowledge and the love of Jesus Christ. But his desire for you, first and foremost, is that you get to know him, that you build a relationship with him. Without that, without that consistent pursuing of Christ in your life, those other things, your accomplishments, those things that bring you joy, they're going to overtake that, and you're going to find yourself, we're going to find ourselves, in the most miserable of places because we know, we know what we have is the jewel of life, the jewel of life. God has a purpose for each person, a plan for every person's life. God has a specific desire in what he wants to accomplish in your life. Ask him, listen to him, do it. I'm telling you, I've run from this, what you see here, I've run from it for a long time because I know what's required. I do. And it's a scary thing to be charged with a child that you have to impart the word of God into their lives because you've been called to do so. It's a scary thing for a pastor who takes his role seriously to take on the challenge of leading and guiding and shepherding. It's a scary thing. And I ran from it. For years, I've run from it. And I had a friend tell me, 
You sabotage yourself a lot, don't you? I do. I was sabotaging myself because I did not want this because I know what's required. And Paul knew what was required. And he gave up everything for the Gentiles. But far more than that, he loved the Gentiles. He wanted to go to the Gentiles. But his heart, his heart ached for his people. He wanted his people to see the truth. Okay? So the question is not if God has a plan for our lives, but the question is, do I know the purpose God has for my life? Am I allowing God to accomplish his purpose in my life? The broad purpose of God for every person here is, listen to me, is to know him just like Dr. Joe, you know Coco. Claire, you know your husband. Just like we get to know each other. That's what God's purpose is. He wants us to know him. And once we know him, he wants us to go out and make him known. That's, that's our purpose. I know it's, it's simple, but it's hard, isn't it, for us to do that thing? To pursue God with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our mights, and then to love somebody enough to say, you know what? I don't care what you think about me. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you about my Savior. Let me tell you about who I used to be and who I am right now standing here in front of you. Let me tell you about this Jesus. He's the real deal. He is. Second question, am I allowing God to accomplish his purpose in my life? Are you allowing God to accomplish his purpose? God doesn't force us. He's a gentleman, you've heard say. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He's not going to force us to do anything that we don't want to do. Okay? He invites us. He opens the door and invites us to allow him to use us for his glory and honor. That's the privilege that we have. God using us for his glory and honor. I'm going to say it again, brothers and sisters. It's not about the job. It's not about the things that you're accumulating. Those things that have your heart, those things that have my heart, they're going to let us down. We're going to lose them. We may lose them. I shared my testimony with you three, three weeks ago. I lost part of my heart when I lost my daughter. But if that was my hope, if that's all I was clinging to, I would have been done. I would have been done. I would have walked away. But my hope is in the glory that is found in Jesus Christ, my Lord when I'm going to stand before him and say, Lord, and he's going to say, welcome, good and faithful servant. And I'm going to look behind me and say, who, me? <laughs> yes, that's the welcome that we're going to get, okay? We must submit ourselves to a purpose-driven God because God's plan for us 
sometimes, most of the times, are different from our own. They really are. We make our plans, and sometimes God does laugh. You just don't know. You're going in the opposite direction. The purpose and plan of God is designed to bring us into a right relationship with him so that we can know him with all our hearts, with all our souls. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, Jeremiah says. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That's a promise. That's God's promise to all of us. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. The truth is, when there is neither Jesus or his hopes, the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control, when those are not characteristic of our lives, we tend and we will give up. Somebody out there may be there right now. You're on the verge of just giving up. I'm tired. The load is too heavy, Lord. I can't carry it anymore. Don't. Don't do it. Brother, sister, don't do it. This is the hope of glory that we have. When we go into depression and we lose God's purpose for our lives, we've taken our eyes off the hope. In Colossians, Paul refers to the hope of the gospel. And there's no sweeter message of hope in the world than the gospel. When we realize that God Almighty has reconciled himself by, by the death of his son, we can go to bed at night with a quiet and peaceful heart, knowing that every sin that we committed that day, every sin that we've committed in the past, every sin that we're going to commit in the future, Everything God has taken and he's forgiven. He's cast it into the sea. That's our visual of forgetfulness. Okay? It's done. It's a done deal. Now let me qualify something real quick here. I'm not talking about habitual sins. Okay? I'm not talking about willful sinning. If you're there, then you need to revisit your salvation. And I'm serious here. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of the pastors. If sin is a habitual part of your life, a willingness to sin, then there's something going on. And we need to talk. Okay? Please. Jesus brings hope. He brings the hope of glory, which brings the hope to our lives. And when others see him in us, when they see that light, when they see that joy, Christian, lift up your head. Stop looking so miserable. I preach this to myself. I'm not just telling you. I do it to myself. Because sometimes things are so heavy that we don't even look like we have the hope of glory in us. Isn't that right? And when others see him in us, when they see that hope in us, the result 
most often the result is a conviction. What, what, is, what is it about Seski? I know he's been going through a lot. Why is he always smiling? Why is he always, you know, I'm not saying this is true of myself. I'm just guessing, you know. Why does he seem, does he have a joy? Why? Why does Dr. Joe always cheerful, always slapping people in the face? And why does he do that? Why does he have the joy that he has knowing the things that are going on in your lives? Okay? It is the hope of Jesus Christ that we have. Eternity with the creator of the universe, who just happens to be my daddy, okay, my Abba. And we pray it is a conviction which will lead everybody that we come in touch with, that it will lead them to the acceptance of the Father's free gift, Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for all these hopes that we have in our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, you are worthy of all praise. We've sung to you this morning. Father, I pray that these words that I proceeded from my mouth have touched at least one person, Lord, that beside myself, Lord God, that you use your word to just encourage and lift someone this morning. Father, would you move in the remainder of this service, Lord? Would you have us humble ourselves before you, Father, and cry, Abba, I'm here. Here am I, Father. Send me, use me for your glory and honor. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.